Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. St. Augustine is the patron of the Diocese of Bridgeport, and his feast day is coming up on Friday. So Bishop Frank will take a look at his life on today's episode of Let Me Be Frank, as well as the life of his amazing mother, St. Monica. Before we get into it, let me tell you quickly about the St. Joseph Society. If you can give $500 a year or more, that's $41 a month or less than $1.40 a day, you can become a vital part of the Veritas family and help keep Catholic Radio going strong here in New York and Connecticut. Veritas is here to help you strengthen your faith, strengthen your family and your neighbors. And as Mother Angelica used to say, this station is brought to you by you. So it's your station and we need your help to keep this important mission going. Join the family. Join the St. Joseph Society. Go to www.veritascatholic.com for more details. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm here with the star and the focus of the show, the excellent Bishop Frank Caggiano. You know, Steve, you are too kind. I'm neither star nor, nor the, the heart of the show. It really is. It's your undertaking, my friend. Right? Yours. Of which I'm very happy to collaborate with you. I think this has been a, a great experience of growth for me personally to be able to spend this time and to share faith. So I thank you for that. But anyway, thank yeah. you for your kind words. Well, people dial in for you. And, and I look forward to this every week because I get so much out of it. So, um, Who are we you know, talking actually, about today? Huh? So, well, <laughs> over a few shows, we talked uh, about quite a few saints on this mm-hmm. show and mm-hmm. the feedback that I've gotten from listeners on those episodes has, has been great. And so um, today we can talk about uh, the patron of our diocese, Augustine. The one and only, the one and only, the one and only. Um, and of course we have to talk about St. Monica because without St. Monica, there would be no St. Augustine, right? So yes. it, uh, a, a towering figure by any measure and any standard. And in some way, shape, or form, it seems to me that he is a very um, timely figure for our own age. Not simply for his theology. I mean, Pope Benedict said that he was one of the most influential um, figures in his intellectual life, Hmm. was Augustine, which is interesting. But because of the age in which he lived, the, the heresies he fought, Many of those are, are rearing their heads in the modern world, in our contemporary society, interestingly enough, right? So, do you want to jump in? Yes, yes, let's do it. Okay, all right. So, first and foremost, to understand Augustine of Hippo, there are a couple of things we need to remember. The first is that he um, was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa, which is now present-day Algeria, at a time when the institutional church was literally being sacked. It was literally falling apart. Um, Rome was sacked in 410, and that must have created an earthquake in the larger church, which had only, um, in 391, with, with the emperor, become the only religion of the empire and 70 some odd years before was recognized as a legitimate religion at all, having gone from persecution to establishment, or at least to legitimacy, right? Um, it, it was an earthquake. And it's not surprising 
that the church was having such major problems because the Roman Empire was beginning to fall apart. So the alignment between the empire and the church had collateral damage when the one weakened, the other weakened. Mm -hmm. In fact, Augusta wrote the City of God to give hope to people after the Vandals had sacked Rome. So we have to see it now. There's a parallel in our own age because that we're not falling apart, please God, but we have our own serious challenges that we have to face, particularly now in the pandemic. Right. So that's one. The second is Augustine was African. Okay. And one of the greatest towering uh, figures intellectually in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when you read Augustine's works that he had a clear stance against slavery, extolling people principally out of charity to root slavery out. It's unfortunate that what was left of the Christian world didn't heed that cause, that, that challenge, because now we live in a time when we're still dealing with the very deep-seated structural problems and the sin of racism. Yeah. But in his age, and he was also very much opposed to abortion and infanticide, which had become somewhat common practice, right, in the Roman Empire. So I think we need to we need to remember, you know, that um, at least this one man of African descent changed the whole face of the church. Mm. The third is that theologically the church was swirling, swirling with opinions and thoughts and writings, many of which we now consider to be unorthodox or heretical. Right. And they played very much into Augustine's understanding of, of grace and free will and the validity of sacraments. Right, so let's stop for a moment and just look at two real quick. First, okay, you have Pelagius of happy fame, right? And Pelagius was a theologian who in effect denied the need of divine grace to do good works. Right. So in other words, um, there was a great dispute between Augustine and Pelagius about original sin and concupiscence and its effect on human nature. And Pelagius swear, squarely came on the side of whatever happened in the fall, it did not affect in any way or hamper one's freedom to do the good. Therefore, if you sinned, that was completely of your own doing and the consequences that came with that. Right. Now, Pelagianism leads to this idea that you earn your way into heaven, that, it, it, that in fact, grace is not essential to that. And Augustine rejected that wholeheartedly, right, which we could talk about in a bit. Right? The second are the Donatists. Now, this is very interesting. Okay, so the Donatists were very much a sect that, that had tremendous influence in North Africa between the 4th and 6th centuries. Right? And they held to be rigorists. Now, what is a rigorist? A rigorist is someone who was unyielding if a person had apostatized or left the church 
they were unyielding in any attempt to welcome them back into the church. Now, what is, in fact, the larger, larger context? Right? As you know, the Christians were persecuted severely in the 2nd and 3rd into the early 4th century. And many times what the emperor demanded was that a person would, a believer, would need to hand over their scripture as a sign of fidelity to the emperor's religion, which is basically paganism, right? So that transferring, that traditio, made them traitors. And therefore, okay, once that happened, and they left the faith, since there wasn't the practice of auricular confession, how do you get them back? So uh, the donors, so you don't get them back. They're done. They're finished. See you later. Basically, you get what you deserve. And Augustine opposed that. So did the church oppose that. And what we sometimes forget is, before there was the general practice of personal confession of sins, there was the order of penitence. Right? So if a person wanted to come back into the fold, they had to do many years of public penance. It would start with the requirement that you would have to kneel outside the church and beg forgiveness of everyone who came out of church having attended Mass. To the next step is that you would go into church and kneel through the whole ceremony in the back of church while everyone else participated in the front. To the next step where you were allowed to stand and not participate until eventually you would be offered the opportunity to be reconciled and receive focus. It could take years. Wow. So it wasn't so the, the 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 betraying of the faith was not taken lightly by anyone, not even Augustine. But to hold that there was no possibility of forgiveness or them, they rejected. Right. Okay. So that's some of what's were, and of course all of the Christological heresies that were going on, the humanity, the divinity of Christ, the single divine person, right? The 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 unit of the the natures and how they're held together. I mean, all that stuff. Because you can imagine, right? It would give anybody a headache, right? <laughs> But Augustine was brilliant. So the other piece to this puzzle, before we go into any details with Augustine, is to recognize the man just as a man. And you know, the famous line in Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest with thee, O God, in confessions, is describing his own life. That restlessness, I think, describes Augustine perfectly. Mm-hmm. Okay, because intellectually he was restless. Yes. Right? Becoming a rhetorician, going into Manichaeism, dabbling with Neoplatonism, all this stuff. I mean, he was bright, he was articulate, he was, I mean, in rhetoric, there were very few who could stand up to him. He achieved at the age of 30 one of the most coveted positions in the entire empire. Right? In Milan? Mm hmm Okay. So there was that restlessness, which served him well, because he himself had left the faith. Even though he had a saintly mother, he left the faith and went into Manichaeism, right? Which is this dualistic, basically religion. I'm not sure if it's a religion, it's a philosophy, if it's both, whatever it was. It was this dualism between light and darkness, between the earthly and the spiritual. And again, he was fascinated because... Uh, for Augustine, it was all about making sense of that which was around him. 
and he and he valued right reason and the ability to reason through things, right? And he always held on to that, right? So, so that, that restlessness intellectually, there was the restlessness morally, mm -hmm. which we can talk about. But he had a mistress for I forget how many years, 12, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, fifteen years or so. Fifteen years. He had a son by her. Adeodatus, literally a gift from God. He acknowledged his son. He acknowledged his concubine. I mean, for all practical purposes, except for the marriage, right? They were married. <laughs> yeah. Right? And as he began his spiritual odyssey, he eventually left his concubine at great personal sorrow, always acknowledged his son. When Augustine eventually was baptized, he was baptized, and his son subsequently was baptized. His mother, which we'll talk about also later, his mother always wanted to push Augustine back into faith. And it was the singular figure of St. Ambrose who was the bridge in Milan. And it's interesting, uh, Monica thought that Augustine was destined to be married. So he was engaged to a 10-year-old, which our modern ears sounds absolutely bizarre. But in the time of Augustine, young women many times married at the age of 12. That was the age you could marry when you entered puberty. And therefore, Augustine had settled on marrying this young girl who would become of age. And in the two years he waited, that's when he found his vocation to priesthood. But that young woman was an heiress. That young woman came from a family that was very wealthy. Very wealthy. Huh. And Augustine, we know his moral dilemmas and his, his struggles. Okay? Because he fell into bad company when he was a young man, 16, 17 years old. Right? Those, the guys he literally hung out with were all about sexual exploits and he just fell right into it. And then once you get hooked into it, it's really hard to break out of it, right? Yeah. Right? That's not just true in the ancient world. Right. So there was that restlessness of, uh, of, of spirit and, and, and right conduct. But there was a genuineness about Augustine. There was a deep-seated sincerity in Augustine. Um, I think there was pride that his own sinfulness and his own recognition of his sinfulness beat himself, beat, that beat the pride out of him. Hmm. That allowed him to enter into a far more deeper relationship with ultimately the Lord he came to believe in and ultimately affected a lot of his theology as well. It nuanced his theology. So he died 76 years old. He lived a very long life. And to see it in the confessions is to really see an honest, unvarnished testimony of a restless spirit that ultimately found its home in Jesus Christ. It's remarkable. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about the relationship that he had with Monica. Hmm. Well, you know, most mothers are saints. We know that, right? Okay. And Monica was a saint, you know, because Monica, 
Monica uh, married um, her husband, Patri Patricius, if I'm, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I guess the Latin version of what we would now call um, Patrick. Hmm. And he was a quite interesting man. He was pagan. Uh, testimony is he was uh, had a wicked temper that he also uh, lived, how shall we put this, a morally loose life, even married. So Monica put up with a lot of abuse. But Monica was a faithful Christian and um, a very pious and prayerful woman. And she offered up a lot of her sacrifice and pain for the sake of her children, yeah. most especially St. Augustine whom she saw in him the possibility of true faith and true leadership. And I cannot imagine how brokenhearted Monica was when Augustine came home and told her he had become a Manichaean. Right? Yeah. A, 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 a mother's worst nightmare because she's praying for his conversion. She's praying for his to accept faith. And here he comes in, da-da, here I am. Yep. But what does she do? Like any saintly mother, she doesn't give up. So Augustine goes to Rome. She follows him to Rome. She gets to Rome. He's already in Milan. He goes to Milan. She goes to Milan. Okay, it's like the hound of heaven. <laughs> and she keeps praying. And she keeps cajoling and she keeps asking and she keeps giving bearing witness and testimony. And you know what? She must obviously was a very persuasive saint because her husband was baptized on his deathbed. Right? Thank God Augustine came to his wits before then. Yes. Right? And was baptized by St. Ambrose. So, so interestingly enough, there's an interesting piece to this puzzle. And that is... It's, it's, it's related in the confessions that the Lord allowed Monica to see Augustine's baptism, to, to see his conversion. But she did not go home to Africa with him. Because on the way back, she fell ill. Mm -hmm. And is that beautiful passage, I'm sure you read it, Stephen, about when she was in Ostia and how Monica was basically dying and how Augustine and his brother were distraught over the whole thing. And Monica said to Augustine, she said, don't bury me where you will, but never forget me at the altar. Right? Um, so Augustine didn't have his mother at his side when he went back to ministry, when he went to North Africa and when he eventually became the bishop and, and endured a lot of different things, including on his deathbed, the same vandals had invaded North Africa and were about to invade Hippo, mm -hmm. which they only did after he died when they literally burned the place down except for the cathedral and the library Augustine built. That they left. Interesting, right? Yeah. So what do you say about Monica? Monica is the perfect example of perseverance in prayer, fidelity to the Lord's will, uh, holy surrender, to what she could not change, but ultimate trust in God, that God 
would not abandon her son even if she could not help him herself. She could by her prayers and he would do what she could not do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's tremendous. Yeah. It's tremendous. I think of, you You said that um, Augustine as a teenager fell in with a bad crowd and mm-hmm. I always think of um, the line that St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he said, bad company ruins good morals. Amen. Yeah. And... A- as a parent, exa- yeah, exactly. Well, as a parent, isn't that your worst nightmare? It is. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, even I don't, I don't have any kids who uh, so far have uh, fallen as far as Augustine did. But, you know, even with their little uh, meanderings that they've done, you know, my wife and I are always invoking St. Monica. Just watch out for yeah. him. Just pray for him. Right. And... um Right. Oh, you have great kids. You have great, great young people. <laughs> Thank you, you. Right. But you're right. I mean, because the nightmare of any parent is to have done their best to try to lead them on the right path of faith and, and upright moral living and virtue and send them out eventually into a world that doesn't value any of that. Yeah. You know, and there's only so much you can do when you're young, when your children get old enough that um, that's where the Monica factor comes in, where you, you turn to God who can do what you cannot do. Yeah. Yeah. Right? But the lesson of Monica is the results may take long in the coming. Yes. See, I must confess, the older I get, the more history for me is about human drama. It's not about facts and narratives. So you could spew off a thousand facts about Monica. But, but what, what causes me to pause and reflect is the anguish of a heart that saw her son go in a totally different direction after she had been praying, after she had gone through so much suffering. And at the same time, a, a tasting from afar, the joy of seeing those prayers answered. See, that's almost a parable of what Christian life is like, right? So where she lived, how she lived, where she died are important, I suppose, but but just those vignettes are something I could take into my own life, right? Same thing with Augustine, because in a sense, people will say, did Augustine's own human experience influence his theology? Well, I mean, on some level, I think he was rigorous enough, intellectually honest enough, faithful to the tradition which he learned, that he would, that, that he reasoned theologically that which the faith held. But on the other hand, um, his experience has to affect. Yeah. As it does you and me. Yeah. Because that's part of the baggage uh, not big, it's not the right word, the tools are big, probably the better word, that God gives us to do to do theology, right? To, to, to be able to expound the faith. Yeah. So his own struggles and his brokenness must have factored in to both his understanding of the consequences of original sin and how they weakened, made feeble human will and dis, 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 disoriented, disordered, our human desires, yeah, right? That's the whole concept of concupiscence. But his also great 
faith in grace against Pelagian, that you need God's grace and his intervention to overcome this liability we're born with because of we inherit original sin and concupiscence. So it fits his experience, but it's still a testimony of the enduring faith that we have that God doesn't abandon his children, never, ever yeah. abandons his children. Yeah. He's called a doctor of grace for a reason. Right? Yeah. Yeah, there's that story uh, that he told of him and his friends when they were uh, younger oh, and they, they stole yeah, the fruit. Yeah, tell the story. Yeah, tell the story. Yeah, so they stole fruit from, an, I guess, a neighboring garden that they didn't even care about the fruit. They didn't want the fruit, but they did it just because they wanted, it was, it was forbidden. They wanted to do something right. wrong. And right. so there he is taking his experience of the concupiscence and original sin, and then he takes it to the next level. And, and Right, right. I, I knew you were going to raise that question. <laughs> I, have a, I have a quotation from Augustine. This is what Augustine says. He talks about that very act. He says, it was foul, and I loved it. Yeah. I loved my own error. Not that for which I erred, but the error himself. You see, all right. In ancient philosophy, okay, um, sin was seen as a mistake in good. So you chose sin because you, 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 mis you had mistaken something as a good when it was not good. But your intention was not to purposefully do evil. Augustine discovered human nature actually can will to do evil. Mm -hmm. Not because you're mistaken, but because you want to, because right. you like to, because you desire it, because it's attractive to you. Now, that may seem like almost obvious. It's like, well, what's the big deal? But in the context in which Augustine lived, it was a big deal. Because most people would have, most philosophers, most thinkers even would have said, no, no, it's just that you had mistakenly thought it was a good when it was not. It was an apparent good. No, no. No, what? No, no. I wanted to do that. Okay? Now, let's be honest. Who, who listening to this podcast, myself included, has not been in that position where we've chosen to do wrong simply because we wanted to do it? Right. Simple as that. Yeah. Right? And part of... Um, the, the, the great theological legacy of Augustine is he's among the first, if not the first, to talk about disordered desires. That how even our own desires have been affected by the result of original sin and concupiscence. And when we have disordered desires, we choose to gratify desires that do not add to the good. Okay? but they add to our own self-gratification, which oftentimes puts us even into deeper error sin. Right? Yes. Yep. So the will is impaired, but not broken because of concupiscence. Our desires, our heart, are weakened, but not broken because grace can help us to overcome the liabilities we have. Yeah. I think that's very hopeful. And yeah. it's quintessentially Catholic. Many of our Protestant brothers and sisters are in traditions where their founders took Augustine to the logical conclusion and said that nature, human nature, for example, Martin Luther, that human nature is not enfeebled 
it's not weakened. Um, it's broken, if I could put it that way. And that grace in and of itself can't fix it, but grace can substitute for it. There's a famous line, there's a, an image in Martin Luther's writings about at judgment, when we stand before the throne of God, it is not we who stand before the throne of God, but it's, it's Jesus who stands in front of us at the throne of God. And the Lord asking his father to allow the person behind him to pass, if I, if I be colloquial. That in other words, it's his merits that win yes. salvation. Right. right. And Augustine did not say that. Although he very much admitted how, you know, basically, <laughs> uh, I was going to say, uh, I like the word enfeebled. I do like that. Because we're weakened, but not out for the count. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It makes sense. Uh, so I extended the segment and held off the break because you were on a roll, Excellency. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. It was great <laughs> stuff. Let's uh, let's just take a quick break though, and then uh, come back on the other side. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio. The folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, and Bishop Caggiano has been talking to us about Augustine and Monica. Uh, Augustine, one of the giants in uh, world philosophical history, really, and obviously for the church as well. And in uh, the church, he's one of the same, right? He's one of the doctors of the church. Yes. There's over 36 of them. Essential theological or spiritual teaching, right? Significant teaching. He's one of the four, what we call Western doctors of the church. Ambrose, Augustine, Gregory the Great, and St. Jerome, right? So uh, before we go on, I know you want to talk about other things, but when you raise Augustine, then you get all, all my juices flowing. <laughs> Sorry. So two, two last points, if I may. First, okay, he, being a Manichae at one time, um, Manichaeism is a dualistic uh, system. Dualistic in the sense of soul against body, light against darkness. Now, we've talked about this before, about in the modern world, most people don't understand that the body is essentially them. Mm -hmm. It's not just a container that, that holds them, them being a spirit or a center of subjectivity. Right. Augustine held very firmly the unity of soul and body or spirit and body. And why that is important is because even though the body itself was enfeebled because of original sin and concupiscence that came from it, Augustine believed wholeheartedly that that body would be healed in the resurrection. So as early as the fifth century, right, we have some of the towering figures in our church clearly reminding us of the importance of the body Okay, and even if there is a combat between them, 
because of concupiscence. He does not ever say that the body, therefore, is unessential or junk or evil in and of itself. Yeah. So that's extremely important. And the second is the church. This gives me great, great encouragement. Because Augustine speaks of, in the city of God, he speaks of the visible church and the invisible church. Okay? And, you know, the Donatists are claiming they only want the pure church. And Augustine says, no, no, because there's always going to be sinners that compose that church, that are on their way to ever greater holiness. Okay? So even though Augustine holds that there is the church as the heavenly city, Okay, a kingdom ruled by love, and you have the world, which is the earthly empire ruled by self-indulgence and all the rest that goes on. Okay, um, Augustine appreciated the fact that the church will always be um, a project in the making. Mm -hmm. And we have our own challenges in our own age. And people will therefore say, well, then why do I need the institution or the community? I'll just take the whole thing and toss it out, mm -hmm. right? And Augustine said, no, no. Grace is here to help purify the church evermore, deepen it in holiness evermore. Um, but you don't walk away. And you don't kick everybody out who can't reach the mark because the truth is we'd all be kicked out in some way, shape, or form. There'd be no one left. Right. Right? The church of so sinners. Other, two other lessons. Exactly. Yeah. Two other lessons for our contemporary world from Augustine. Okay, so now we can go on to something yeah. else if you want. No, but those two are really important and so relevant today. You know, mm -hmm. the, the idea that you can separate the body from the the spirit and 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 about the church. I mean, so those are uh, really, really excellent points, Excellency. And the other thing too, if I may, okay, and, and this I promise I'll I'll, I'll stop, but um, when it comes to Augustine and the whole question of what was his view of sexuality and was he very much opposed, like did he have tremendous suspicion about the sexual conjugal act and all the rest, okay? If you actually look at Augustine's writings, the real issue for Augustine was not the act itself, right? But it was the desires with which someone, even in marriage, Right, yes. would go forward with, let's say, an act of conjugal love. It was right. the desires attached to it that made it problematic or sinful, not the act itself. So, in other words, and most people, right? So, in other words, Please. even I, as a husband, can uh, approach my wife with lust, which is wrong, even Correct. though we're married. Yeah, right. Correct. That you approach it as a self-gift, mm -hmm. which you're always working towards. Mm -hmm. Okay. In a sense, analogously, although there's no sexual act involved, but a celibate is not meant to be a bachelor. A celibate is meant to give his life not for self-gratification with honor or privilege or power or money. or It's, it's to give your life so it's a self-offering mm -hmm. for love of the other. Yeah. Right? And there's always going to be a struggle in that, again, because of the fall. Yeah. But I think people sometimes mistake Augustine as being... Uh, anti-marriage and anti-sexual activity in marriage. But I, I think that is misreading him. If, if you see him in the larger context, it's the desires that need to be purified ever more deeply. Yeah, yeah. Can I mention one more thing, Excellency? Since Yes, of course, keep it's about, going. It's about Monica and parents because my wife and I say this to each other all the time. 
-hmm. when Monica was talking to Ambrose about um, uh, how worried she was for Augustine, he told her, he said, talk less to Augustine about God. Talk more to God about Augustine. Amen. Yeah. So we... Amen. Amen. You know, Ambrose himself must have been a remarkable man. Yeah. Remarkable. First of all, he was as brilliant as Augustine, if not more. He was probably better at rhetoric than Augustine. So Augustine got his match, right? Mm-hmm. Met his match. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Augustine speaks to him so affectionately. He calls him his father in some ways. Yeah. So I guess what his earthly father wasn't in faith, Ambrose was in the spirit for Augustine. And patiently led him forward. Yeah. Now, think of this, for example. Again, to our own life. How many Augustines are there right now that you meet or I meet or the people who are part of our podcast community meet that if we really spent the time in self-sacrifice to lead them forward patiently to faith, that in a thousand years they will look back and the person we are nurturing will have the same effect both on the world and the church that Augustine had in his age that this person would have in our own age. Who's yeah. to say there's not a lot more Augustines out there waiting for me and you to do what Ambrose did? Yeah. And how would we know unless we did it for everyone we met? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. We need to always be ready to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. give people a reason for our hope. So, right. Uh, I, I wanted to um, ask you, Excellency, so a couple weeks ago, a listener mm-hmm. asked you a question about your assessment of the mm-hmm. diocese today after seven years uh, mm-hmm. being here. And mm-hmm. so today I want to ask you, uh, mm-hmm. wh- so when you sit alone by yourself, you let your imagination run, what are some of the dreams you have for this diocese? And what would you like the diocese to look like in 10 years or 20 years? Wow. <laughs> That's a great question. And it's a great question because I have actually thought about it for a very long time. And in fact, I'm in the midst of putting together a, 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 a pastoral exhortation to try to give, give word to it. But um, I've always been consoled with the fact that the sky is darkest before the dawn. Hmm. And for the last seven years, I've begun my eighth year, we've met a lot of challenges. And with the help of God's grace, being a good Augustinian, um, we have as a community of believers here overcome them, faced them head on. And for those that don't have an immediate uh, response, at least we have honestly looked them in the face. And I think we've done tremendous strides of trying to heal from wounds that exist in our midst, starting first and foremost with the wounds that the abuse crisis has caused in the lives of wonderful people who have carried burdens and crosses for years and years and years. Some of the most poignant, some of the most powerful moments of my adult life have been with survivors of abuse and seeing their courage and how they have come to be healed in Jesus Christ. It's astonishing. Okay. So my hopes and dreams for the diocese 
is that we now, in the next two years, can rise to the challenge to clear the field so that we can actually start planting a crop that will yield glory to God. We have to start by asking ourselves individually, I, am I, to whom do I owe my allegiance? And if I owe my allegiance to Jesus Christ and to his presence in the world, which is the church, his mystical body, then one of the highest priorities I would like to see happen is that everyone take their prayer life and their education in the faith seriously. And we give them the tools to do both. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the soldier does before he or she leaves the bunker. You have to be ready for whatever comes your way. And I want to see a diocese where we have parishes. We will have fewer of them and they will be vibrant. They will be Eucharistically centered where people will understand the gift of salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. Not simply to do good or to be a community or to socialize, well, that's lovely, but because you have come because his death and his resurrection has given you the opportunity to live in glory for all eternity. That is who we are. So I want to see a reclaiming of redemption and salvation and the joy that comes from liberation from sins in our diocese, in every community, in every heart. I want our parishes to sing the praises of God. Yeah. I want them to do what Augustine said. Let's go back to Augustine. When the Donatist built the church next to him and his response was, sing twice as loud and they will come to us. I want us to sing so loud that even the deaf of heart can hear us. Yeah. And I want schools that are authentically Catholic. You come in, you could smell the Catholicity in the school. So I could raise, all right, young people entrusted to our schools. And I want programs of faith formation that are not just academic, but truly experiences of life-giving, transformative formation so that we could raise the next generation and I could retire in peace <laughs> in 14 years. <laughs> yeah. That is what I'm hoping for to happen. And there, and, and there is a plan. We can do this. But this is what I want our listeners to think about. No farmer plants seed unless he turns the ground over. Mm -hmm. No contractor or builder builds a house without taking the old one down. Mm -hmm. We have to discern what's perennial, what's enduring, what's unchanging in our church, in our faith, in our structures, and what needs to go so we can build new structures and new outreach in the new world in which we live, which is a missionary country. Yes. We are not a Christian country. We are not. So let us just accept the reality as it is. We need to reintroduce Catholic faith we have to be missionaries, like we talked about a few podcasts ago. And quite frankly, at this point, we have to accept the fact that a lot of what we built for a different model is now more a hindrance than it is an aid. Mm -hmm. So what am I hoping for? I'm hoping for the grace and the wisdom and the perseverance and the courage 
to collaborate with everyone who's listening, with everyone who's, who, is, who wants the church to be vital and to grow again, raise up our sleeves in the next two years, do some really heavy lifting, and start planting seeds. Yeah. That's what I want. So you're saying it's not going to be a smooth ride, an easy road. <laughs> oh, no. Who wants a smooth ride when you yeah. could have a bumpy ride? Seriously. It's not, it's not interesting if it was a smooth ride. It can't be. It never is. Who, because in the end, my friend, even Jesus didn't rise without dying first. Mm-hmm. And consider all the suffering and pain he endured. The resurrection only makes sense in the light of Calvary. Otherwise, it's cheap glory. Yeah. So for us too. So, you know, but mommy used to say, you got to break eggs to make an omelet, which she made some great omelets with asparagus and potatoes on this story. <laughs> but so we're going to have to change some stuff. Yeah. And will everybody be happy? I would have no mail if everyone were happy because obviously people send me when they're not happy. But but we got to do what's right. Yeah. When you're talking about a complete rethinking, restructuring, because otherwise you're just going to be managing decline over the next 20 years. Until Correct. So, so this is the bottom line. A missionary goes to where people are. Okay. So we have parishes that are vibrant, that can't financially support themselves because many of their people are poor. The time has come for the diocese and the communion, the family of parishes to support those parishes. It's as simple as that. We have young people congregating where? In gyms, bars, and malls. Well, where's the churches present in gym, bars, and malls? Even in the pandemic, they're going to bars, which is another question. But how do we do that outreach? People are rejecting a faith they do not know. And pre, pre, preconceived notions of a faith that are wrong. Yeah. How do you get that out of their heads and give them the opportunity to teach? So what did Augustine did? Augustine looked at the philosophies of his age. He wasn't afraid to dialogue on Neoplatonism and all the rest of them. And because he needed to use language people understood, at least those who were educated, to, 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 to debate and dialogue to bring them to faith. So are we doing that? What about the means of communication? The pandemic has taught us we too could go into the digital continent and be effective. Yes. Yep. yep. We can. So I think it's exciting. I honest, honestly, and I know I'm an, I, I think this, this, the pandemic with all of the suffering it has caused is still a moment, can be a moment of grace yeah. for us. And there's, I mean, there's the obvious uh, structural upheaval that you're talking about that you will manage on the diocesan mm -hmm. level. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I keep going back to, uh, it starts with, and you, I get this from you, you've said this many times on Let Me Be Frank, we need to go back to the mentality uh, that we're in the apostolic times facing um, a hostile right. culture, hostile government. It's very unlike this, the environment that our grandparents lived in. Um, and you, actually, you just even said this a couple of minutes ago, you know, in a, and in a hostile culture like this, we need to begin at the beginning, which is uh, on the individual level, preaching and living the charisma to, to everybody that mm -hmm. we come in contact with. Mm -hmm. The greatest change that will have to occur is how we acknowledge and measure success. 
And there is a profound missionary spirituality that will have to be reintroduced into the hearts of many clerics, religious, and lay people who will begin to understand success through the lens of a spiritual reality and not an institutional reality. That for us is going to be um, a hard lesson. Even I as a bishop, it will be a hard lesson because if I'm planting seeds at the same time, for example, mass attendance continues to decline because we're setting the stage for a renewal that can come one, two, three, five, ten years down the road in full earnest. People could look at me and say, you're a failure. What did you do? And where is going to be the confidence of spirit like a Monica who will mm-hmm. be able to sit before God and say, Lord, um, I, Lord, your servant is listening. I'm doing what you're asking of me. Keep me confident in your grace and in your ability to do what we cannot do. Which is very different from saying I have a million dollars in the bank. I, get a gr- I did a great campaign. I'm painting my church. I'm redoing <laughs> the parking lot. I have 100 people for confirmation. Well, that's lovely. And the 100 people come is great. It's great. Yeah. But is that the full measure of success? I don't think so. Right. Right. Yeah, because the, the picture that you painted uh, when, when I first asked the question of the parish, uh, where the parish is like a pillar of the community, where the priests are vibrant and zealous and the laity you know, live with love for their neighbor and they're evangelizing and reaching out to the lonely and the marginalized, the fallen away. It's going to take a lot of pruning and change to get there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody likes to prune. No one likes to prune, right? No one. Yeah. No, no. Not even the vine grower. Certainly the vine doesn't like it, I don't think, but the vine grower doesn't like it either. Yeah. Because he has a deep affection for his vine. It's his livelihood. It's his source of, of, of nutrition. It's, I remember um, my, my friend's father used to trim the fig trees before he covered them and put a barrel on top of them to endure the winter cold. And I would look there and I would marvel and how he was, it almost like he was being Savage, he would just cut it down to it. Wow, mm-hmm. same thing with the vine, but particularly even the fig trees, and yet they would come back in the spring beautifully. And um, is that what we're about now in the church? I wonder. Yeah, could be a very powerful image to reflect on. Yeah, yeah. The world offers us comfort, but we were not made for comfort, we were made for greatness, as Pope Benedict XVI said. Well said. Yes, well, of course. Came from yeah. Pope Benedict. Yes, of course. <laughs> Excellency, let's take one more break and we'll come back with uh, listener questions. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So Excellency, the, the, the question we got by email this week 
um, it was pretty vague. So the email says, recently three books were written about the next pope. What are your thoughts? So the listener doesn't elaborate. Um, I don't know where Good. you want to. Because my <laughs> response is very simple. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea why anyone would want to write a book about what the next Pope should or how, when we already have one. Yes. Chosen by the Lord through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's the successor of Peter and he is our spiritual father. So until there's a vacancy, I wouldn't bother. And quite frankly, <laughs> very few people could have surmised he who was chosen as successor when Benedict resigned, and that which he has done in service of the church and the faith. So uh, being a pragmatist, I, I'm sure those books, I've not read them, nor do I plan to. I, I, they may serve a purpose. I don't understand what that purpose may be at this point. I am very much have the Italian approach to this, and that is the Pope will come when God's ready. He'll pick the one he wants, and our job is to follow him in faith. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we don't have to speculate about what the, the men who wrote the book were thinking, but maybe you could also just tell us, um, give, give us a framework for, you know, the role, how we should view the role of the Pope in today's society, today's church, and, and how, yeah, and that's how we should view him. See, it's interesting. I think... Perhaps we, we should dedicate an entire podcast to this because some of, um, again, there's a misunderstanding of what the Pope is mm -hmm. because in many ways he is the symbol of unity in the church. He's the symbol of communion in the church. He is the first among the bishops uh, without whom they cannot act as a body. But So he's like almost the ecclesiastical glue. And what Francis and others, but Francis in particular saying is to be the glue does not mean we're going to be uniform in everything we do because there are different cultures and different traditions. But he has to be the guardian of what's essential in all the churches and hold firm to that unity, which is rooted in truth, in prayer, and in practice. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we should talk about that actually okay. one day because it's, 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 it's a fairly important topic and it's a fairly complicated answer but I, I think for the secular world they see the Pope as simply um, a quasi-monarch ruling an institution which is you know the fact that there's governance is without, without doubt mm -hmm. but that is not the sum total of the service of Peter to the church by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, in the secular world, that's what they understand it to be. Right. And even within the church, I guess we should avoid the temptation to, you know, like Paul wrote, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow yes. Benedict, yes. I follow Francis. Yes. yes. You know what I, I like in the image, perhaps we could end with this. If you've ever, um, when I, for example, when I was younger and um, when I would clean up, outside, particularly at my friend's house, we have a, a very large backyard, and you would pick up, you know, leaves and twigs and stuff. Um, in many ways, the papacy is an ongoing symphony 
where those who came before, their insights, their faith, the unity in faith and worship and in mission, echoes through the ages. So there's a baseline that endures, that will never change. But then there are notes and nuances and flourishes that are added to it for a time and a season. But if you listen carefully, the echo of what happened before still remains. Mm -hmm. So the symphony becomes ever greater, ever louder, ever more detailed, ever more beautiful. That's the idea. So Francis is building on what Pope Benedict taught, who's building on what Pope John Paul II taught, and onward and on, and John XXIII, and Pius Twelfth, and all the rest. Each with their own gifts, each with their own emphases, but it's all one canvas that's being painted. Yeah. And sometimes people, they forget that. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. In the church, they forget that, which is unfortunate. Yes. So if you're okay, listening... we've covered enough territory, my friend. What do you think? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, if you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, comment, disagreement, compliment, anything, send it in. You can... Uh, Submit your questions on the Veritas app, on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can always find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Veritas Catholic Network is there as well. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you and grant you his mercy and peace. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I enjoyed our conversation today, Steve. Thank you for the opportunity. I'll see you next week. Thanks, Bishop Frank. See ya. Okay. Okay.